We're going to continue our study in the book of 2 Samuel. We find ourselves in the opening chapter, in the opening verse of 2 Samuel. And as I am prone to tell you, if for whatever reason you've missed any portion of the teaching, it's available in the media room. You can go to our website. You can download the teaching when it's convenient for you and, and listen. 2 Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, the text reads, Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag. On the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and he prostrated himself. And David said to him, where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Then David said to him, how did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, the people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. And David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? Then the young man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called to me, and I answered, and I said, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? So I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. He said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and Jonathan, his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who told him, where are you from? And he answered, I'm the son of an alien, an Amalekite. So David said to him, how was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. Then David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Then David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. And he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. 
O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for the shield of the mighty is cast away there, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. First Samuel ends with the death of Saul and his sons. And 2 Samuel begins with David back at the camp of Ziklag. That was his headquarters. Remember, this is the place that was burnt to the ground where his family and the families of the men who were with him were taken captive. He returns to the camp to see what he can salvage. And an Amalekite messenger comes with the news of the death of the king. And like an epic saga... Samuel was originally one book in the Hebrew canon of Scripture. As a matter of fact, in the second century BC, the books were separated when Ptolemy II ordered that this book be translated from the Hebrew into the Greek language. And so originally, this is one book. And so what we find ourselves, even though it's separated in our Bible, we just pick up where the story of David has left off. And of course, the focus of the book is David's kingdom. As a matter of fact, someone asked me not too long ago about the life of David and the chronology of David. We come to about the midpoint in David's life. As a matter of fact, if the book of Samuel were a movie and David was a character, and we were casting for the role of David at this point in his life, he would be about 30 years old. He's been with Saul since about the age of 17. At about 18 or 19, he goes on the run. And David will live for about 40 more years after this. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 78, verses 70 and 71 and 72, it gives us a, a sort of a, a little glimpse into the life of David. In Psalm 78, 70, it says, He also chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes that had young he brought him, to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. David was maybe 16 or 17 when he was watching his father's sheep. He was perhaps a little bit older when he slew the giant. And now from the time of about 19 to the time of about 30, he's been on the run. 
And now David will come to the pinnacle of his life and it will guide him in the skillfulness of his hands. And for the first few decades, as when David is king, he will rule the people and he will shepherd the people from the integrity of his heart. But David's life, like many of your lives, like my life, like so many people, his life was marked by triumph, but his life was also marked by tragedy. David, some 40 years after this, will die a broken man with a broken heart. In the opening chapter, we find a messenger of death. And then we discover his message of death. David's mourning over the death. And then the murder of the death's messenger. And then a song in the memory of Saul and in the memory of Jonathan. And the great message of this chapter for the believer is a discovery, if you will, of a principle. And part of that principle is how do we honor faithfully God's leader and God's leadership? And we're going to discover some things about forgiveness. And so beginning again in verses 1 and 2, it says, Now it came to pass after the death of Saul when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites and David had stayed two days in Ziklag. On the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. Now remember what we've already learned. At the end of 1 Samuel chapter 30 and at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 31, David is a changed man. He has been on the run. He's experienced a time of backsliding, backsliding and rebellion. He has come to a place of humility and brokenness and repentance. He has sought the Lord. He is honoring God. The Lord has been with him. He's recovered the family and the possessions. He's destroyed the Amalekites. He's come back to the camp. He's survived. But in that surviving, there is a sense of brokenness and humility. But there's also now a sense in which he is willing to obey the Lord. Now, we, the last time we were together, we read the account of Saul's death in 1 Samuel chapter 31, verses, verses 3 through 5. And if you just turn the page of your Bible back to 1 Samuel chapter 31... In verses 3 through 5, it says, The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword, thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. And therefore Saul took the sword and fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell on his sword and he died with him. In other words, the Pressure and the presence of, of the Philistines have been bearing down on him. The arrows like missiles have gone through his armor. It's pierced his abdomen. His guts are falling out. He is literally on death's door. He's begging people to kill him. So some scholars have said, well, wait a minute. 
The account in chapter 31 and the account here are different. Yeah, this can be easily explained. The Amalekite is lying. And the reason why we know that the Amalekite is lying is he is telling this lie in order to ingratiate himself with David in the hopes of reward. And so, could it be that Saul fell on his sword and didn't die right away? Is it true that the Amalekite came and finished him off? I'm going to suggest to you that the answer is no. As a matter of fact, was he in a circumstance where he could find Saul's royal crown and take the bracelet? Clearly he does. The messenger isn't just dirty. When his clothes are torn and his head is filled with dust and rubble, these are signs of an ancient Middle Eastern custom that when you are in mourning, you would tear your clothes and you would take dust and dirt and you would rub it into your hair. And so the Amalekite comes into the camp under the guise of mourning. And remember, remember, the Amalekites are the enemies of Israel and they are the perennial enemies of Israel. And in verse 3, of 2 Samuel, it says, And David said to him, Where have you come from? So he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. Is it possible that he was a prisoner of war or that he was fighting with the Israeli people? We aren't sure. David knows that the Philistines and Israel have engaged in a massive battle. Remember, God has spared him the wickedness and humiliation of fighting against his own people. God has supernaturally delivered him. So David is very sensitive at this point, And clearly he wants to know about the outcome of the battle. Now, if the messenger had simply limited himself to the details of the battle, he might have survived. But he decides to lie. He could have joined David and the men in their grief. But he decides that he's going to try and get something out of the tragedy. One Bible writer said Saul's death would have been accepted as the judgment of God and no guilt would have been attached to the messenger. But he wants more. And in verse 4 it says, Then David said to him, How did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, The people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan are dead also. So David says to the young man, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? And it's interesting his response. The Amalekite says, you know, it just so happened that I happened to be by chance on Mount Gilboa. Yeah, right. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. Now you have to understand something. When Saul is leaning on his spear, the image, of course, is a leader who is standing up in the face of battle in order to demonstrate courage to the people who are following him. He's leaning on his spear. And again, whether or not that's true, it's, it's interesting that he says this. Now, he's close to suicide. And so the Amalekite says, Saul begs me to kill him. And so the Amalekite's story is he was wounded. 
mortally wounded. He doesn't have long to live. He begged me to kill him. And I put him out of his misery. We might even say that this is a kind of mercy killing. And so in verse 6 it says, Then the young man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on the spear, and indeed his chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, and I said, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And he said, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. The idea being I've been mortally wounded, but I don't seem to be able to die. And then it says, So I stood over him and killed him. Because I was sure that he wouldn't live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm. And I brought them here to my Lord. Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. Now this is interesting on so many different levels. David demonstrates grief and mourning. And somebody reading this might think it's really not for Saul. It's perhaps for David. It's for for perhaps for all of the, the men who have fallen in battle who are literally his kinsmen, his close relatives. David mourns and we might have expected celebration because remember his enemy is dead. Now think about this for just a moment. Think of, of the circumstances that you're reading Saul managed to take or destroy everything that David valued. David was on the run because of Saul. David was a homeless person because of Saul. David's wife, David's job, David's status, David's position, everything that David had had been taken from him. Saul dies and Saul dies in an unrepentant state. But in spite of that, David mourns. David Gusick writes, and I quote, This powerfully demonstrates that our hatred and bitterness and unforgiveness are chosen and not imposed upon us. As much as Saul did against David, he chose to become better instead of bitter. And there is an insight there for each and every one of us. Because Almost certainly you can't come into this life without someone offending you, at least in some fashion. It's hard to grow up and not have a problem with a father or a mother or a brother or a sister or a neighbor or a friend. Someone who does something in order to make your life miserable. But David mourns and weeps and fasts until evening. Look what it says. For Saul... And for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And it's very interesting, when David does that, David's men follow his example. They follow the leader's example. And in verse 13, we see respect. For those that God appoints. In verse 13 it says, Then David said to the young man, 
who told him, where are you from? And he answered, I'm the son of an alien, a Malachite. So David said to him, how was it that you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Now you have to understand something again. You'll recall that Saul had been ordered by Samuel to wipe out the Amalekites, to kill all of them, men, women, children, livestock, animals. And remember what we discovered, that the Amalekites become a type and a picture of sin, of the old life, of the life apart from God and the life apart from from Christ. And so the idea is that we're to deal harshly, ruthlessly. We're to deal dramatically with sin. We're to make a big, clean break from sin. When you come to Christ, you turn from your sin. You make a dramatic change. And when we studied the life of Saul, one of the big lessons that we learned was this simple, simple thing. When God asks you to do something, you do it. You don't have to be a theologian to figure this one out. When God makes a command... You obey the command, but because we are wicked and because we are fallen and because we are foolish, people will often make an excuse for their sin. Well, I have good reason to continue in my sin. I have good reason to continue to to keep the relationship going or, or to keep the wickedness going or to do whatever it is that we think that we need to do. God did not order the execution of the Amalekites on some capricious whim. He isn't up in heaven, a guy with a long beard and white hair who's up there going, well, you know, I think Jews are cool and I think Amalekites are, are not cool. So I think that I'm going to let the Israeli people live and I think I'm going to let the Amalekites die. No, that isn't how it works at all. As a matter of fact, the Bible says specifically that Amalek is a type and a picture of sin. Not specifically in the sense you can go to a chapter and a verse and say Amalek is sin. But if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 17 through 18, you'll notice that when the children of Israel were coming out of the land of Egypt and they were getting ready to go into the promised land, that they had literally millions of people, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions, and the lame and the blind and the handicapped and the poor and and the, the people people who were the most vulnerable would go to the end of the train and they would linger and the Amalekites would come and pray on the elderly, on the sick, on the very young. And so God said, I, in Exodus 17, 16, The Lord says, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And so the Lord pronounces a curse. He's in a perpetual state of war with Amalek. And the only way to defeat Amalek, again, the type of the flesh, the sinful nature, the life that we have apart from Christ is to declare war. And remember, ours is a spiritual war. We pray and we seek the Lord. There's a picture of that 
given in Exodus chapter 17, verse 11, when we're introduced to Joshua, we see Moses standing on a hill, and there are two people who are holding up Moses' hands, and Moses prays, and Joshua fights. It says in 17.11, Exodus 17.11, and so it was, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed, and when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. And so, we get a little bit of a lesson. And the little bit of the lesson is, there's certain circumstances in our life that are only going to be dealt with in victory by prayer and by war. And by that, I mean the war that Jesus Christ wages. The Lord promises one day to blot out any remembrance of Amalek in Exodus 17, 14. And like our battle with the flesh, it's Joshua who defeats Amalek in 17, 13. And like our wicked fallen nature, Amalek enters into alliances with the enemies of God. Remember the three enemies that we have, the world, the flesh, the devil. But your flesh will willingly enter into an alliance with the devil or with the world. And so in verse 14, David says, how was it you were not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's command? Now, can you imagine everybody's draw jobs when, when, when David asks that question? What? Yeah, how, how was it that you weren't afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? How, how could you not be afraid? How, how could you take it into your hands to kill the person that God has anointed and appointed to the office of the king? Now you'll remember that David's life through several of the chapters as he spares David's, uh, Saul's life is he can't bring himself to kill the Lord's anointed. And the reason why he can't bring himself to kill the Lord's anointed is he understands a basic principle. And the basic principle is that it was God who made Saul the king. And so in his way of thinking is, if Saul has, if God has made Saul king, then, then it's God who has to remove him as king, either through the judgment of God's enemies, that is the Philistines, or Saul taking his own life. So what does this mean to us? In other words, when you look at this, what does this mean as far as you're concerned? I think that the immediate application is, guess what? The Bible doesn't just simply suggest, but the Bible proclaims that leadership is something that comes from God. Civil leaders. Church leaders. Here's what the Bible not just seems to suggest, but seems to declare. You have a mother and a father. Your mother and a father were, were assigned to you by God. You know, in some cults and other religions, they believe that, that there are spirits in, a, in like a little spiritual baby factory somewhere in heaven and that people get to sign up for the family that they want to be with. And I'm thinking, man, if that were the case, I would have signed up for Bill Gates' family. <laughs> hey, I want to be in the family where you have multiple billions of dollars and all of your dreams get to come true. But the reality is that isn't the way you're assigned a mother and a father. God assigns your mother and your father. And even though this is going to come as a shock and a surprise to most of you, once you make the commitment to enter into 
marriage. You might think, well, did God give me my husband? Did God give me my wife? You may debate that until you're blue in the face, but the reality is once you are married, the Bible sees that your husband is your God-given husband and that your wife is your God-given wife. And the Bible seems to indicate and make it clear that you don't get a little... uh, a genetic uh, card that you get to check off when you have your children, that God places children in your life. That son, that daughter, that circumstance. And you might think, well, you know, if I had it to do all over again, I would have gotten someone different. But hey, guess what? The son or the daughter that you have is the son or the daughter that you have. Pastors and presidents are given by God. Now, does this mean that pastors and presidents can do whatever they want, whenever they want? No. As a matter of fact, there are guidelines given in the Constitution and in the Bible for the removal of pastors and presidents. If your pastor does something wicked and something wrong, we have a board. We have... A church bylaws, we have, there's certain things that pastors aren't allowed to do. And if I do those things, I could lose my job. And rightly so. The Bible says that we're to respect certain offices that God ordains. I've had the privilege of meeting with many leaders in our state. Governors, the, now the interior secretary, the mayor. And again, my position as a pastor of a church isn't to promote a political personality or a political party, but it is my job and responsibility as a pastor, according to the Bible, to give honor to whom honor is due. You treat the governor with respect. You treat the, the mayor with respect. You treat the judges with respect. You do not treat them disrespectfully. As a matter of fact, we respect the offices that God ordains. And you'll remember, even in the New Testament, do you remember when Jesus was on trial before Pilate? And Pilate viciously said to Jesus, Don't you understand that I have the ability to crucify you or set you free? Do you remember Jesus' words? You would have no power over me whatsoever unless that power were given to you from above. Ooh, now all of a sudden things are in the right perspective. Jesus understands that Pilate has been put in a position of authority. Now listen carefully. Under that circumstance, even over him. Jesus doesn't dispute the claim. He just simply says... You would have no authority over me whatsoever unless it was given to you from above. And there's a strange statement that's given in the New Testament right after that. It says, and from that statement forward, Pilate sought Jesus' release. He wanted to let him go. When Paul was taken prisoner and he was put on trial and he was interrogated by the high priest, Paul says, you whitewashed sepulcher, and he was slapped by the attending guard. And Paul said, why are you slapping me? And he goes, because you just called the high priest a whitewashed sepulcher. And Paul goes, dude, I didn't know it was the high priest. 
had I known that it was the high priest, I would never have spoken to him that way because the Bible says that we're to honor the high priest. Paul doesn't say that there's a separate set of rules for him. We honor the office. We honor the office even when the person who holds the office acts dishonorably. And so, David is no dummy. David remembers the slaughter of, the, of Ahimelech and the priest. David remembers the tyranny of Saul. David has 600 men plus their wives, plus their children. He is under a constant pressure and oppression. I am amazed when I read this passage. Because David harassed and hounded doesn't seem to bear any grudge against Saul. You should be shocked by that. You should be surprised by that. His amazing capacity to be generous and forgive should astound you. David is a man after God's own heart, but remember why he is a man after God's own heart. He's not only willing to abandon his own sin. He's not only willing to repent. He's not only willing to abandon his sin, repent of his sin, follow God, and obey God. Guess what else he's willing to do? He's willing to forgive his enemies. And the reason why this becomes so important for you is because if you want to be a man after God's own heart, if you want to be a woman after God's own heart, it is true that it begins with repentance. It, it is true that it continues with attaching yourself to God. It is true a willingness to hear from God and obey God. But God's going to grow you up. He's going to mold you and shape you and change you. And in order to mold you and shape you and change you, He wants your heart to be free from bitterness and from resentment. And in order for you to be free from bitterness and from resentment, it's one thing to theologically in your mind believe that God orders and orchestrates all of the circumstances of your life, but it's now a whole different ball game when you begin to live it out in the very real world in which you're living. Because I know for sure that I'm talking to men and women who have been cheated and taken advantage of. I know that I'm talking to men and women who people have hurt you in profound ways and taken advantage of you in profound ways. David is willing to forgive. Nowhere in this chapter does David delight over the demise of his enemies. Nowhere do we see him celebrating. Nowhere do we see him jumping for joy. Do you? Do you find yourself saying, you know, she really had it coming to her. He really had it coming to her. Do you find yourself saying, secretly delighting in your, in your heart when your ex-husband or your ex-wife have to declare bankruptcy because of their... They're experiencing the fruit of their bad decisions. 
Does that secretly delight you? Now think about it. David is beginning to model what will become the heart of his future famous son. Remember what the New Testament says? Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. I was shocked and surprised when I was preparing for my radio program this evening. I went to uh, Breitbart.com and I, I went to the Drudge Report and I'm starting to get some statistics and information about Haiti. And there is Pat Robertson. And Pat Robertson says, well, you know, um, I hate to be able to one to talk about this, but early on, you know, Haiti was part of a French province and, and a group of the leaders of the, of, the, of the Haitian people got together in order to throw off the yoke of oppression of the French government. They made a pact with the devil. They literally sold their collective souls in the country to the devil if, if they could get rid of the French. And because Haiti sold its soul to the devil, it's never been free from heartache and pain and wickedness. And I, th I was thinking to myself, you know, even if this is true, even if this is true, the day to bring it up isn't the day when they're taking thousands of people who are dead in the streets off of the streets when you can hear the wailing and the crying but you can also hear the singing is it true i don't think it's true there's there doesn't seem to be any evidence to support it is it true that people who act wickedly and sinfully and in rebellion and disobedience to god is it true that there's harsh consequences the answer is yes this is what the bible says the Bible says that the way of the transgressor is hard. David practices what he preaches. David had several opportunities to end the reign of, of Saul, but he refuses. He's convinced that the only person who has the right to remove Saul is the person who placed him in the position. And so David is doggedly going to be committed to that. And in verse 15, look what it says. He asked the question, how was it that you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? At this point, you expect in the passage some sort of rationalization. He was your enemy. He hated you. He wanted you dead. He was going to die anyway. But the Amalekite never opens up his mouth. When David says, go near and execute him in verse 15, and he struck him so that he died. I want you to read that a little bit differently just for a moment. When David orders the Amalekite to be executed, do you know what it shows? David's sincerity. David is not just simply mourning on the outside for a show. This isn't just a thing where, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cry some tears. I'm going to, I'm going to weep and cry. I'm going, to, I'm going to put on an act as if I really cared about this person. But secretly, I'm going to reward the person who killed him in order to make all my dreams come true. The reason why this becomes important for each and every one of you is David is doing the right thing. Not to put on a show. David's grief is real. It's not just an outward mourning. 
It isn't an inward rejoicing. Ding dong, the witch is dead, the wicked witch, that mean old witch. And look what David says. Your blood be on your own head. For your own mouth is testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. You have to understand something. If anyone had an excuse to kill Saul, it was David. But none of those excuses mattered. Do you want, want to know why none of the excuses mattered? Because murder is wrong. Murder is wrong. And let, let me just be clear here. Murder is wrong. It is never right. It is always wrong. Now, are there times when, when there's the justified killing of an individual? Yes, there is lawful combatants. There are police officers who have been charged by our government to protect citizens. There is the lawful taking of an enemy combatant's life. There is self-defense. There's the lawful execution of a criminal convicted of a capital crime. But in the end, listen carefully, in the end, in the end, in the end, it is God's job to take life. It is not your job. To take life. You mean the unborn? That's exactly what I mean. You mean people who are very old and they're very, very sick and they're begging you, they're begging you to kill them. Here's what you need to be able to say. You were created in the image of God. And God knows that my heart breaks when I think about the pain and the suffering that you're experiencing. But you were made by God and you were made in the image of God. And God help me, but it is the Lord who has given you life. And it is the Lord who will take your life. The Bible says it's appointed once for a person to die. And then there's the judgment. David appears to have this tremendous capacity to forgive, but also this tremendous capacity for judgment and by the way for those of you who are familiar with the details of David's life and you're familiar with David's backsliding and you're familiar with David's departure to the land of the Philistines you remember when he acts like a crazy man you remember when he's living the life of a terrorist and you remember that he lies you remember that he lost his temper you remember that David was cruel you remember that David was was crafty you remember that he's an accomplished terrorist you remember that he spilled innocent blood and you think, oh, David's the hypocrite. And then you remember to accuse him of nothing that you yourself are guilty of. This has been like an eye-opening event for me. One day, I prayed a prayer. Lord, help me not to accuse anyone of anything that I myself am guilty of. Guess what? My criticism pretty much went away. I'm trying to think of a single thing that I have done wickedly, wrongly, sinfully. Does David have skeletons in his royal closet? What do you think the answer is? David is a sinner, isn't he? 
but he's also a saint. He's that strange mixture of light and shadow, of consistency and inconsistency. But David decides that revenge and bitterness and a lack of forgiveness isn't going to be a part of his life. Has someone hurt you? Are they dead? Are they dead as far as you're concerned? You know, each and every one of us have private issues that we have to struggle with and struggle through. But God is calling you to live a life free from bitterness and free from resentment. And the key, of course, in grief is finding hope. Because when we find hope, we can face the loss. Remember, we talked about that on Sunday, for those of you who are with me. Remember in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and that's exactly what we believe, even so God will bring with him, that is with Jesus, those who sleep in Jesus. For the Christian, death is never the end of the story. Grief, listen carefully. Grief is always temporary when we have a permanent hope. Grief is always temporary when we have a permanent hope. On the program today, a lady called me and her heart was broken. She was going through a divorce. And she wanted to know about the consequences of the horror that she was facing. And I said to her, let me ask you a question. How long were you married? She said, we dated for about a year and I was, we were married for 11 years. And I said, I have good news and I have bad news. Which do you want to hear first? And she said, the bad news. And I said, if you dated and were married to this particular person for about 11 years, the bad news is it's going to take about five years for you to get up and wake up and live your life every single day. It's going to take about five years before you go for one whole day where you don't think about him at least one time throughout the day. It's going to take you about five years where, where you stop crying and the loneliness and the darkness and the emptiness and the pain that has come from your divorce. And then there's going to come a day when you're going to wake up and you're going to go the whole day and you're going to be just fine. And that's the good news. You see... There's a reason why grief is so deep and so dark and so painful. It was supposed to be that way. Your relationships with your family and your friends and with your children, they are important and they matter. But grief is always temporary when hope is permanent. Grief seems universal. And so David, he writes what's called an elegy or a eulogy. He laments the death of Saul and Jonathan. And in verse 18, he 
writes a song. It says, then he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. And by the way, the book of Jasher is mentioned in Joshua chapter 10, verse 13. It, it appears to have been a book of Hebrew poetry and a collection of Hebrew poems. And some people have thought, well, this means that there's a lost book in the Bible. No, there are no lost books. All of the books that are supposed to be in the Bible are here. Everything that you need to know about life and godliness is contained in the Bible that you have right in your hand. And so grief seems to be this universal. The only person exempt from grief is the person who never loves. Hey, do you want to avoid never being unhappy? You want to never have to go through the deep, dark process of grief, then here's my advice. Never care about anyone ever. Because the moment that you do, the moment that you love someone, you can experience grief. And by the way, grief isn't a sin. It's a normal part of being a human being. So David picks up his harp and he writes a song and the song has been called the Song of the Bow. And most scholars believe that it's called the Song of the Bow because it speaks of the fact that it was the archers who brought Samuel, excuse me, who brought Saul and David low. And so the, so the song that David sings is the song of the devastating bow and arrow that pierced his friends. And the theme of the song is how the mighty have fallen. And you'll see that refrain in verse 19, in verse 25, in verse 27. Over and over again, it's repeated. And the phrase sums up the enormous loss of David's heart. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. And as you go through the song, and you see the beauty of Israel is slain on your high places, it talks about how they have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. These are the trade centers of 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 the Philistines and let the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you. For those of you who went with Israel, we went right by the Mount Gilboa. And when our, our guide was taking us through Mount Gilboa, the, the guide said, look and see on the top of the mountain. What is it that you see? We said, we don't see anything. And he goes, that's exactly right. He said, King David placed a curse on the mountain so that no rain falls there and nothing grows there. And he quotes from 2 Samuel and he says, and it's that way to this day. He curses the ground. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever visited a graveyard? Some of you have. I've seen the graves of Civil War veterans and those who have died in both world wars and graves of Korean War veterans and Vietnam War veterans and, and now Middle Eastern veterans. Before the hurricane came, my family's home was located on the east side of the Mississippi River in a place called Chalmette. And next to the place where my father lived, there is an open field and a mansion. It's called Beauregard's Mansion. 
And in this open field, it's a field that was called the Shalmet Battlefield because it was at the Shalmet Battlefield in January that you remember the song uh, in 1814 where they took a little trip down with Colonel Jackson down the mighty Mississippi. They took a little bacon and they took a little beans and they fought the bloody British in the town of New Orleans. Some of you know the song. They fired their guns and the British kept it coming. There wasn't quite as many as there was a while or more. They fired their guns till the barrel melted down. In real life, in two hours, 2,000 British soldiers died. Eight American soldiers died in what was perhaps one of the most providential battles in all of history. But the place where they died, it became sacred ground. In the Civil War, in Gettysburg, in Vicksburg, in Antietam, 50,000 American soldiers died in a single day. In Gettysburg, Lincoln gives the famous address that this is sacred ground. This is precious ground. This is the place where our sons and husbands gave their life. That's what David is talking about. That, that's what David is saying when he's talking about Mil, Mount Gil, Gilboa. Mount Gilboa becomes a sacred place to him. Because the best and the brightest of Israel have fallen on it. How can people he loves die there and it remain an ordinary place? Some of you have seen that. You've had loved ones who have died in a tragic accident or in a terrible circumstance and people will build a little memorial right on the side of the road and you look at the cross and you look at the flowers and you say to yourself, why would anybody put a cross and flowers at that particular place? And you know why, because it's the place where the person that they loved has died and it's no longer an ordinary place. It becomes an extraordinary place. And anyone who's ever lost a loved one can begin to relate to David's lament. And David points out that he hopes that the Philistines' joy will be short-lived in verse 20. He points out that nothing's going to grow on the mountain in verse 21. In verse 23, you know, he, he basically says, Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives. And someone reading that might think, how hypocritical, David. Jonathan, yeah, I can see how you could say that about Jonathan, but Saul is a jerk. He's a wicked jerk. It reminds me of a story of Luigi and Mario. They were criminals in Florida. They were involved in drugs and prostitution and racketeering. And when Luigi died, Mario came to the pastor and he said, I will give you $100,000 if you'll do my brother's funeral and you'll say that he's a saint. And the pastor goes, your brother really wasn't a saint. Matter of fact, he was involved in drugs and alcohol and prostitution and racketeering. As a matter of fact, your brother's one of the most wicked people I've ever known. But I'll do the funeral. And so he gets up and he goes, Luigi was a criminal, a mafioso. He was involved in drugs, alcohol, gambling, prostitution, and racketeering. But compared to his brother, he was a saint.
You know, it's interesting to me how David's eulogy is absent all of the wicked things that Saul did. David has no unkind words for Saul. He refuses to speak ill of the dead. And I don't think David is doing this simply out of respect. I think he's doing it because his chief concern seems to be for the Lord because he is the Lord's anointed and because he is dead, his death brings opportunity for the enemies of God to speak ill of God. It's not Saul's reputation that David is trying to protect. It's God's reputation. And so when you refuse to speak ill of your husband, when you refuse to speak ill of your wife, when you refuse to speak ill of your president, when you refuse to speak ill of your governor, when you refuse to speak ill of the people that God has placed in authority and responsibility, it isn't to protect them. It's to protect God. And again, it isn't like God needs protection, but rather... That God's name be glorified. Whatever differences they had in life, they're united in death. And David manages to see the beauty in Saul. And David doesn't want the enemies to rejoice over the death of Saul. And David wants everyone to mourn Saul. He wants the mountains and the fields to mourn him. He praises him as a mighty warrior. He compliments his personality and loyalty. He calls for the daughters of Israel to join in the mourning. He praises the good that Saul did for Israel. And how do you do that? How do you generate so much praise for someone who has generated so much grief and so much sorrow and so much tragedy? It's because God cares what David does and David trusts the Lord and David covers the circumstances in a principle that you all know from the New Testament. Remember when Peter writes that love covers a multitude of sins? David knew that God was in charge of his life. David knew that what the devil meant for evil, God was going to use for good. And so David pays tribute to his friend Jonathan. When you come to the end, it says, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. And then he says in verse 26, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. This is the point where he cries. He doesn't just simply sing the song. This is the point where his heart breaks and his head becomes a fountain as he is describing a friendship that is long-lasting and consistent and loyal and selfless and responsible and realistic. Here's what David says. It was this friendship that made his life noble. And it's Jonathan's memory that will teach David the most important and lasting lesson about grace. But this will come later. 
So David wrote a tune. David wrote a song. So everyone would remember Jonathan and Saul. You know, when I was preparing this message, I came across a note that I received many years ago from someone who was in the midst of personal grief. She wrote, I knew that someday my husband would die, but no matter how often he was ill, I never really thought about life without him. For weeks after his death, I couldn't stop crying at the slightest remembrance of him. And now, months later, life still doesn't seem normal. <laughs> normal. I don't even know what that is anymore. Food doesn't taste as good as it did before he died. Colors aren't as bright as they were. Jokes aren't as funny. Sleep isn't as deep. And I don't have the energy that I used to. The end of my husband's life was like a song cut off before the last note was played. And the tune never leaves my mind. It drifts into the background from time to time. But it's never, ever far away. I'm sure that David didn't just sing this song once. He sang it over and over and over again. You know, we who are Christians, sometimes we have to sing a song to remind us of God's goodness and his grace and his mercy and his promise. Remember the theme of the song, how the mighty have fallen. Do you realize just how David is, how kind David is being in the song? We all know that Saul fell a long time ago. Saul fell when he hardened his heart against God. Saul fell when he refused to repent. Saul fell when he refused to return to the Lord. Saul fell when he refused the word of God. Saul fell when he refused the instruction of the prophet. Saul's death on Gilboa was the sad conclusion to a fall that had already taken place a long time ago. But oh, how the mighty were fallen. You know, someday, someone may sing a song about you. What do you suppose they'll say? How do you suppose it'll go? I know at this point you're thinking, he's going to sing a song. But I'm not going to do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to be men and women who, like David, are men and women after your own heart. We've learned so many things about his character. A willingness to forsake sin, a, a willingness to embrace the promises of God, a willingness to turn from our sin, a willingness to hear from God, a willingness to obey God, a willingness to not be bitter and resentful over people who have hurt us and hounded us. A willingness to come to grip that there is a God who is ordering our life every moment of every day. 
that each and every person and each and every circumstance that you've placed in our lives, you've placed there by your sovereign decree. And we want to be men and women who love you and serve you. And so, Lord, we pray that we would guard our hearts against bitterness, but we would open our hearts to the possibility of grief. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.